Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Eric. I'm a pastor at HMCC of Jakarta. It's my privilege to preach the Word of God for us today. We are currently in part 81 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the Gospel of Luke together. And today's sermon is titled, Jesus Chose to Submit to Suffering. Let me pray for us one more time before we jump in. Lord, you are our God and we are your people. So as you speak to us through your word, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts that are willing to submit to you, even as we see the perfect Son of Man submit to his Father's will. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things I learned early on in marriage is that Tina, my wife, doesn't just want me to do things, but she wants me to want to do things. She wants me to do things without her telling me to do things, like washing the dishes, picking up a meal for her, buying her flowers, and so forth. Of course, this can become a little bit problematic at times because I want to do what she wants me to do, but I sometimes don't know what she wants me to do until she tells me. Um, but of course, I think this sentiment is something that we can all relate with on some level. In general, most of us appreciate something more when someone chooses to do it for us rather than simply feeling obligated to do it. So if a friend writes you an encouraging note on his own initiative, you'll probably value that more than the encouraging words you receive from your coworkers during your routine 360 review. Or if your sibling tells you on their own initiative how much they appreciate you and how good you are at something, you'll probably appreciate that more than if they only said those things because your parents made them say it to you. And the same is true when we think about our Savior. Was Jesus simply obligated to suffer and die for us as sinners? Or did he really choose to do it for our sake? When we realize how agonizing this decision was for him, and how he still chose to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners, it should make all the difference in our response to him. And it should make all the more sense why he alone is worthy of our worship. So the one thing for us today is this. Jesus chose to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners. Jesus chose to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 we'll be looking at verses 39 to 53. Luke chapter 22, 39 to 53. Uh, just to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage, everything has slowed down since the beginning of Luke chapter 22, as we've now entered Jesus' last 24 hours before his crucifixion. Jesus has eaten his last Passover meal with his disciples, where he also instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus told his disciples that one of them will betray him, and they began to question one another, which quickly spiraled into a dispute about who is the greatest. Jesus said that Satan will sift them, his disciples, like wheat, specifically saying that Peter will deny him three times, but then assured him that he has prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And Jesus used the figurative language of a sword to tell his disciples that they will experience increased persecution after his crucifixion, but they didn't understand what he was saying as they presented him two physical swords. And that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 53. It says this, And he, that's Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may 
not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in two parts. And we'll see two kinds of suffering that Jesus chose to submit to for the sake of sinners. First, the agony of the cup. And then second, the betrayal of the kiss. So first, the agony of the cup, verses 39 to 46. Look at verses 39 to 40. Previously, Jesus and his 12 apostles were in the upper room of the house where they ate the Passover meal and observed the first Lord's Supper. Now there is a scene change where Jesus and his disciples go to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the place, which we know as the Garden of Gethsemane, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And at the garden, Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. The temptation or the trial or the test is most likely regarding what Jesus spoke about earlier to them, the impending increase of persecution that his disciples would soon face after his crucifixion and how Satan demanded to sift his disciples like wheat so that their faith in Jesus may fail. But just as Jesus said that he was praying for them, he now asked them to align their prayers to his prayer for them, that their faith in him may not fail. Now, as we'll soon see, this was one of Jesus' darkest hours. Look at verses 41 and 44. Here we begin to see a Jesus who is greatly distressed and troubled. In fact, in the other gospel accounts, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch or keep awake with me. You know, this is not the composed and controlled Jesus that we have seen throughout the rest of the gospel of Luke. But only here in the garden and later at the cross do we see a Jesus who is in insufferable distress. In verse 41, We should know that Jews at the time typically prayed standing up with their eyes lifted to heaven. So it's unusual that Jesus knelt down and prayed. Other gospel accounts say that he fell on the ground and prayed, or he fell on his face and prayed. 
It's as if the burden of sorrow that he was feeling was so heavy that he collapsed to his knees and fell on his face to pray. And in verse 42, we hear that Jesus was wrestling in prayer to submit to the will of the Father, which he knew was to undergo great suffering for the sake of sinners. Just as Jesus was earlier tempted in the wilderness, Jesus is once again tempted in the garden to avoid the cross before the crown, to avoid humiliation before exaltation, to avoid suffering before glory. Again, this is not the composed and controlled Jesus that we are used to seeing. So what's going on here? Now, in order to understand what's going on in Jesus' prayer, we have to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has a divine nature and a human nature that cannot be divided but can be distinguished. As such, Jesus, as the God-man, has both a divine will and a human will. And with respect to his divine nature, the Father and the Son are one. They share the same will. But with respect to his human nature, Jesus distinguishes here between his will and his Father's will. Therefore, in his human nature, Jesus must choose to do or submit to the will of the Father. But even as a, a perfect human being, Jesus has the same desire to live just like any other human being. We would say that something is very wrong with someone if it was their will to suffer horrendous torture and crucifixion. Nobody in their right mind would happily go skipping to their impending horrific death. But it's actually not merely physical death that Jesus is wrestling with. He doesn't say, Father, if you are willing, remove this death from me. But he says, remove this cup from me. The cup was a familiar Old Testament image for the wrath of God. We have to recognize that Jesus was not wrestling merely with the certainty of his physical death or even the horrendous method of death by crucifixion. After all, there were other men who had been crucified. And we have known many brave martyrs who have faced their deaths with less agony and more apparent bravery than Jesus is exuding here. Rather, Jesus' suffering and death is unique in that he is suffering in the place of and for the sake of sinners. The cup of God's wrath was equivalent to what we deserve for our sins, eternal punishment in hell. As believers in Jesus Christ, all our sin was imputed or accounted to him, and he bore the wrath of God, the full judgment of God, the full curse of God for our sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The agony of Jesus was not the fear of death, but it was the agony of the cup of God's wrath for our sin. His agony was from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he as our sacrifice was to bear in greater pain than mere dying. We should never think that somehow all of this was easier for Jesus because he was the son of God. No, this was a conscious choice that Jesus made in his human nature to submit to the Father's will, to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners. This was not an easy, automatic choice for him, but he wrestled with it in prayer. And Jesus' prayer is honest and raw in his struggle. In his human nature, he longed for cup to be removed from him. Jesus is staring sin and the wrath of God in the face 
And he is deeply struggling with the prospect of drinking that cup of wrath down to its dregs. And yet, his prayer ends where all our prayers should end. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus models what he calls all his disciples to pray. Your will be done. In the end, Jesus in his human nature can submit himself to the Father's will because he knows him as his perfectly loving and good and sovereign Father. That's how he starts. Father. It's not a distant God. It's his Father. But notice, even though his Father seems to... Uh, even though his prayer seems to end with a definitive sense of submission, we see that this is not a one-and-done prayer. In the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus didn't just pray this once and have it settled, but he continued to pray multiple times these very same words. But the way Luke presents it is very interesting. In verse 43, it says that an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen Jesus. This is similar to earlier when Jesus was being ministered to by angels after 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness, except that was at the end of his praying and temptation. Here, the angel comes in the middle of his praying and temptation to strengthen him so that he can keep on praying. And in verse 44, the word agony doesn't just describe inward pain, but it means that there was a fight within his soul. It implies no common degree of sorrow but such extreme distress that his nature had a most violent conflict with it. As a man that wrestles with all his might with a strong man, that's the agony, the conflict that he was feeling inside. In a very real way, this struggle was tearing him apart inside. But in the midst of such violent conflict within his soul, Jesus prays more earnestly. You know, usually in pain and sorrow, we try to escape to sleep like we'll see the disciples doing later, or to distraction. But Jesus presses in even more into prayer. The more agony he feels, the more he presses in to prayer. And in verse 44, Luke begins to describe physically what he's been describing mentally and emotionally of Jesus' distress. He says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we would think that Jesus' crucifixion would be described with his blood falling to the ground. But there's actually no mention of that there. But here in the garden, as he's wrestling in prayer to choose to go to the cross, this is where his blood is mentioned. Even before the cross, Jesus was near the point of complete collapse. The prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath for our sin nearly killed Jesus in Gethsemane, even before he ever made it to Calvary. In a sense, Gethsemane is where the real battle was fought. At Gethsemane, Jesus did not drink the cup, but there he chose to drink it for the sake of sinners like us. Let's keep going now to verses 45 to 46. In verse 45, Jesus gives a reason for the disciples sleeping. They were sleeping for sorrow. Remember, they had probably never seen Jesus like this ever before. In every other place before this point, Jesus had been composed and controlled. Yet here he seemed to be unraveling before their eyes. He had told them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. They saw the agony and distress of their master. And being just a stone's throw away, they could even hear his distraught prayers. 
And so because they saw the pain of their beloved master, they couldn't help but to feel to some extent the sorrow of Jesus. But unlike Jesus, who pressed deeper into prayer and missed his sorrowful agony, his disciples did what perhaps most of us are tempted to do when we're filled with sorrow. They escaped to sleep. They didn't want to get out of bed, so to speak. They didn't want to face it. Now, of course, sometimes sleep is the right answer. Perhaps most of us would be living in greater obedience to God and honoring our God-given limits by consistently sleeping more. But here, Jesus had specifically told them to watch and keep awake with him and to pray. So Jesus' question of why are you sleeping is not because he doesn't know, but because sleeping is not the right response right now. It's like when someone does something foolish and you ask, why did you just do that? Jesus then exhorts them again in the right response. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's what he had already told them to do. It's what they had already seen him do. And it's what they had already heard him do. So what are some takeaways for us at this point? Let me offer three life applications. First, pray honestly, submissively, knowledgeably, and persistently about your sorrows and struggles. There's a lot here, so let me break it down. If Jesus, the perfect human being, prayed in such a raw and honest way to the Father, then we also ought not to be afraid to pour out our hearts honestly to the Lord in prayer. We don't have to come all tidied up. We don't have to be concerned if our prayers sound eloquent enough. We don't have to be worried about saying the wrong thing. But we have the freedom to come as we are, broken, distraught, weak, and needy. So we come honestly, but we also come submissively. We come with a heart that's resolved to submit to the Lord's will no matter what. We can make our requests known to him, but we don't make demands, threats, or ultimatums with God. No, in the end, we acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And we trust that his will alone is good, acceptable, and perfect. And the reason we can do that is because in Christ, we know God as Father. Even if we struggle or lack understanding, if we trust the character and the competency of our Father, then we can submit to him. He is all-loving, all-good, all-powerful. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We pray with a deep trust that our Father's plans are for us and not to harm us. They're for our good, to give us a hope and a future. We pray knowledgeably that in Christ, God is our Father. And we pray persistently. Jesus' prayer wasn't a one and done prayer, but being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He needed to be strengthened by an angel in order to continue to pray persistently. He prayed the same things repeatedly and with greater intensity to the point where he's described as having great drops of blood fall to the ground. If that's how the perfect human being with the perfect relationship with the Father prayed in this time of struggle, then we shouldn't expect that praying about our struggles should simply be one and done. And notice Jesus prayed about a sorrow. His soul was very sorrowful, even to death. He doesn't try to escape or distract himself from his sorrows, but he goes to the Father in prayer amidst his sorrows. And Jesus is only doing what we see many saints in what they've done all throughout the Psalms and all throughout history. They pray their sorrows to God 
And there it's the simple truths of who God is, what he has done, what he has promised, who we are in light of all that. Those are the things that can truly soothe our sorrowful hearts. And the context by which we experience that over and over again is in prayer. Talk to any saint who's gone through suffering and sorrow and they will tell you it's not these profound truths. It's in the context of praying to their father that they realize the same simple profound truths about who God is that comforts them. It's not more sleep. It's not TV. It's not talking to all these other people about it. It's ultimately they recognize again who their father is and they trust him. Jesus also prayed about a struggle, a violent conflict within him regarding obeying the will of his father. You know, we often pray for our health, our family, our work, our church, hopefully the nations. We pray for decisions to be made and things regarding the future. But that temptation that you're prone towards, anger, lust, envy, unforgiveness, bitterness, cowardice, whatever it may be, how often and how intensely do you pray about that struggle? How often do you pray that you would obey God's will no matter what and that your faith in Christ may not fail? As we're in this one desire fast as a church, this is a great time to turn towards our Father in prayer. Like Jesus and in the power of Christ, let's resolve to pray honestly, submissively, knowledgeably, and persistently about our sorrows and struggles. So that's life application number one. Second, take the wrath of God for sin as seriously as Jesus did in Gethsemane. As Jesus stared in the face of sin and the wrath of God that our sin deserves, he wasn't calm about it. He was physically, emotionally, mentally distraught about it. If we trust in Christ as our substitute Savior, then yes, all of our past, present, and future sins have been paid for once for all by him. That is the gospel message that we rejoice in, and we ought to rejoice in that. But that doesn't make sin any less serious or heinous. In the midst of our forgiveness, we must never lose sight of how distressing, destructive, and damning sin really is. So what sins are you currently struggling with? As it's been famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We ought never to get comfortable with sin in our lives. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we of all people ought to take the wrath of God for sin as seriously as Jesus did in Gethsemane. And we ought to do all we can by his power at work within us to rid ourselves of sin. Third, please thank God and trust Jesus who chose to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners like us. You know, perhaps some of us, the gospel has gradually become an assumption that has ceased to move us. Yes, I know that Jesus loves me and died for me. I've heard that all my life. I know that's true. I believe that. But for Jesus, it was never an assumption that he was going to love and die for sinners like us. It wasn't an easy, automatic, of course, kind of thing for him. Look at the agony that he's going through. He chose, he made the conscious decision to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners like us. And just let that sink in for a moment. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then he volunteered to be your substitute, to endure the hellish suffering of the wrath of God for your sin that you deserved. May that never just become an assumption, an entitlement, and of course, now, how does that affect your understanding and your treasuring of the extent of Christ's love for you? That he chose to do this. Our God became a man so that he could choose to suffer as our substitute savior. No other God or person could or would ever choose to do this for you. And because of this, our God knows firsthand what it's like to suffer and so he can relate with our own sufferings and temptations. Yet he was without sin. So he understands us on the most personal level. Yet he can call us and empower us to overcome whatever we're going through. Nobody else could do that for you. When we see the agony of Christ and his human nature, we don't have less, but we have more reasons to worship him. So as that truth sinks in, praise and thank and trust him afresh for choosing to submit to suffering for us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the essence of the gospel. God created us, we are accountable to him, but all of us have miserably failed to live according to his word. And so all of us rightfully deserve his wrath for our sins against him. But in love, God came in the person of Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we should have all lived, to suffer and die, to take the punishment that we all deserved. So now all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior are saved from that wrath and are given eternal life. I pray that you would see the love of Christ in the agony of Christ and that you would trust him today. If that's you, please share with the friend that you came with or with any of the pastors, any of the members here, we'd love to help confirm your faith and come alongside you in your fellowship of Christ. So first, the agony of the cup. Second, the betrayal of the kiss, verses 47 to 53. Let's first look at verses 47 to 48. So as Jesus was still telling his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation, there is the sudden appearance of a crowd. Jesus was ready for this moment. He'd been He'd been knowledgeable that this moment was coming. He was praying regarding this moment. But the disciples had just woken up. And having squandered their opportunity to pray, they were not ready for this moment at all. And who is leading this crowd? It's the man called Judas. At this point, we obviously know who Judas is. But the way Luke presents him here is as if he's, been in, he's being introduced for the very first time. As if he were separate from the rest of Jesus' apostles as if he's not the same Judas we've known throughout Luke's gospel account. He's the man called Judas. But then Luke says that he's one of the 12. It is, in fact, the same Judas. And that is the most heart-wrenching part of it all. Judas was personally chosen by Jesus to be in his inner circle. Judas heard all Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, including all of his warnings regarding money, which was the reason that he betrayed Jesus. Judas witnessed all of Jesus' miracles and was even included in on miracles, like feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Judas was entrusted by Jesus to preach the gospel and empowered by him to cast out demons and heal the sick. Judas heard Jesus' straightforward warning that one of his own would betray him. And Jesus had even washed his feet earlier that night. 
Nobody had loved Judas better than Jesus had. And yet it is Judas, one of the 12, who is leading this crowd to betray and arrest Jesus. In fact, it's because of the closeness of the relationship with Jesus that Judas is even able to betray him. The apostles had been with Jesus at that hour in the Mount of each night, as was his custom. So only one of his apostles would know that he would be there away from the crowds that night. The religious leaders wanted to arrest and kill Jesus, but they were afraid of doing so amidst the crowds for fear of the repercussions. But it was Judas who not only gave them the information, but he personally led them to him. And not only that, but verse 47 says, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. The kiss was a common form of greeting in that community, even among men. But it was more than just a simple handshake. It was a sign of friendship or affection, of love. Now, of all the ways that Judas could have betrayed someone, to betray his master, his beloved friend Jesus, how could he use a kiss? The symbol of friendship, affection, love. And that's what Jesus is getting at in his question to Judas in verse 48. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Could he not have pointed Jesus out with his finger? Judas was there at the Passover meal that very night, so he could have just told the crowd what Jesus was wearing. The religious leaders had just engaged with Jesus earlier that week in the temple, so surely they already knew what Jesus looked like. So Judas could have just told them where to find Jesus and not have been there at all. And yet, he not only gives them the information, he not only personally leads them there, he walks straight up to his beloved master and friend and betrays him with a kiss. Jesus' question is not one of shock. He already knew that Judas would betray him. Rather, the question he asks is more for Judas. Jesus is pricking at his conscience as the question exposes Judas for how far he has strayed. Judas, how could you have chosen such a sign? Could you not have employed another way? Are you so dead, so beyond feeling that you would use a kiss to betray me? Even to the point of betrayal, Jesus is seeking to keep Judas from ruining himself by calmly showing him the hideousness of his act how evil his act is. How could he not see it? Jesus is not reacting in surprise, but he is reaching out in love to Judas to lead him to repentance. Judas, it's still not too late for you. Turn from this wicked betrayal. He's trying to help him to see. You know, perhaps for some of us, we may feel some level of betrayal from family members, friends, even fellow church members. In fact, it's the closeness of our relationship with them that leads us to feel such pain of betrayal. Simply put, we expect love from loved ones. And when we receive evil for good, we feel intense pain and almost disbelief. How could this person do this to me? Now, as we look to Jesus, we shouldn't think for a moment that this was any less heart-wrenching for him as it would be for us. This was the worst kind of betrayal. 
where Jesus received the worst kind of evil for the best kind of good that he showed Judas. There was no pettiness or misunderstanding here. This was very likely the worst betrayal in the history of the world. And yet, Jesus responds in love to Judas. In the midst of his heart-wrenching pain, Jesus is still concerned for the spiritual well-being of his betraying friend. But that's not how the rest of his disciples respond. Look at verses 49 and 51. Upon seeing Judas' betrayal, you can imagine the surprise and the anger that the rest of the disciples felt. All the disciples had earlier been questioning one another who would betray Jesus. So nobody suspected Judas as more likely than the rest. The other 11 disciples also see the crowd armed with swords and clubs. They know that they've come to arrest, perhaps even kill their master. So they think that it's best to strike first and try to overpower them. Perhaps they thought about what Jesus said before about having a sword, which they terribly misunderstood, and how they presented two swords to Jesus. And perhaps they thought that this was the time to put those two swords to use. So in verse 49, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But in verse 50, one of them doesn't wait for an answer from Jesus before he strikes the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. We know from John's gospel account that the one of them is Peter, and the servant of the high priest is Malchus. Here, Peter seems serious about what he said earlier. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But this was f- so foolish in, in many ways. First of all, Jesus didn't need any help. He could have called down more than 12 legions of angels. Another reason is simply he didn't wait for an answer. Jesus could have told him no, but he just went ahead and did it. We also know from John's gospel that along with the religious leaders, there were also Roman soldiers present. So they were attacking government and religious officials, which of course is against the law. They also only had two swords, and this crowd was armed with swords and clubs. They were definitely not going to prevail, but they would have likely died themselves. And Peter obviously also had terrible aim. He was a fisherman, not a swordsman. The religious leaders were about to spend all night trying to find some legal charge against Jesus. If his disciples attacked the crowd with swords, they could easily claim that Jesus was leading a violent band of rebels and they would have found all the legal charge they needed. Jesus, therefore, would not have been able to say to Pontius Pilate later on, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. If Jesus didn't immediately remedy Peter's blunder by healing Malchus's ear, Jesus wouldn't have been able to make this claim to Pontius Pilate. But most importantly, this was against God's plan of salvation. Jesus had told his disciples three times that this, is what was, that this was what was going to take place according to God's plan, and yet Peter was violently going against it. So Peter's rash was foolish. Rash act was foolish in so many ways. But aren't many of us just as prone to such foolish responses? You know, we pray or we ask Jesus what to do, but then we don't wait for his response before we just do whatever we think is best. It's kind of like we throw out a token prayer, but we were never going to listen anyways. Remember, Peter also felt this intense sense of betrayal by his friend Judas. He was angry and he wanted revenge. 
and then he felt before he thought and he did something very foolish. How many of us have been there? You feel some intense emotion, you don't even process it before you, st- you just do something very foolish. Later on, you, you come to regret it. You know, for us in situations where we feel a smaller sense of betrayal or injustice, many of us resort to slander or bitterness because we feel the need to stand in judgment of them in some way. Perhaps we talk negatively about them behind their backs. We stop listening to them. We think the worst of them. We stop praying for them. We refuse to ever forgive them at any point. They're too far. They've done too much. We avoid them. In one way or another, we pick up the sword, so to speak, to punish them for their wrongdoing, whether in our hearts or with our lips or in some other way. But that is not the way of Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we know that either Jesus has chosen to pay for their sins if they trust in him to have paid for them on the cross, or they themselves will pay for their sins one day before God. Jesus has done it, or they will pay for it. Either way, God will someday right every wrong, so we don't need to pick up our swords, so to speak. We don't have to carry out justice in our own imperfect way. God will do it. Like Christ and in the power of Christ, we can respond to even the worst pains of betrayal with loving concern for the spiritual well-being of our family member, friend, or even fellow church member. And again, don't forget the first part. What was Jesus doing? He's praying in agony to be able to respond in this way. In the same way, we ought to be prayerful that by his power and by his will, we would be able to live like Christ has lived. Going back, we see that Peter's foolish act was about to get them all killed. The crowd was probably beginning to unsheathe their swords and raise their clubs at the sight of Malchus's bloody detached ear. But in verse 51, Jesus quickly stopped both sides by saying, no more of this, and by miraculously healing Malchus's ear. And in so doing, Jesus saved all his disciples' lives. He showed that his church is not to wield the sword. He displayed his compassion for his enemy who came to arrest him and do him harm. And he demonstrated his willingness to undergo injustice for the sake of the glory of God. And therefore, we also ought to treat others, even those who have hurt or betrayed us, with such compassion by not wishing or doing harm to them, not avoiding them, but by choosing to show them grace and mercy and continuing to pray for them. Of course, they don't deserve it, just like we don't deserve that grace and mercy either. But as we pray in agony to do what Christ has done for us, by his grace and by his power, we're able to do it as well. Now look at verses 52 to 53. In verse 52, the term for robber has the connotation of a man inclined to violence. But Jesus was the gentlest man who ever lived and who never took anything that did not belong to him. So the religious leaders coming out with a crowd armed with swords and clubs as if he were a robber was totally inappropriate, so unnecessary. Jesus was publicly teaching in the temple day after day, so the religious leaders could have arrested him at any time during the day, but they feared the people. So so by coming out with swords and clubs in the cover of darkness, it was the religious leaders who were ironically, in fact, acting like armed robbers. Jesus was exposing their cowardice and guilt. 
They were not courageous nor righteous enough to arrest him during the day. So they resort to doing so in the dark. But then in verse 53, Jesus says something startling. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Your hour is not referring to 60 minutes. But Jesus is saying that this is the period of time when they would have their evil way. This is when his apostle and close friend Judas would betray him. This is when the religious leaders would act like armed robbers to unjustly arrest him. This is when the Son of Man would submit himself to the great suffering that he was awaiting and agonizing over all the way to the cross. The power of darkness is a phrase that's used in other places in Scripture to refer to the rule and dominion of Satan. So in short, this was the definite period of time where evil men and Satan would seem to triumph over Jesus, to seem to have their own way. But the very fact that Jesus is declaring, this is your hour, shows that he is ultimately in control. There is a time limit on their hour and the power of darkness. Sin and Satan seem to triumph at Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane and in his crucifixion at Calvary. But three days later, we see Jesus breaking the power of darkness, bringing the light of salvation to everyone who believes in him. On Easter Sunday, Jesus conquered sin, death, and Satan. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin has lost its power, death has lost its sting, and Satan has been effectively disarmed. And what's more is that this hour that supposedly belongs to evil men and to Satan is really Jesus' hour. He owns it. It's his. All throughout the gospel accounts, the hour or his hour is frequently talked about in reference to Jesus' suffering and death. It's his. It really belongs to him. So all the supposed triumphs of evil men and Satan, the treacherous betrayal, the unjust arrest, the horrific crucifixion, all of it was in fulfillment to God's word and according to God's plan. The suffering and death of Christ was ultimately for the salvation of sinners as Jesus bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved. Therefore, the hour of Satan's power was also simultaneously the day of our salvation. As believers in Jesus Christ, we do not live in the power of darkness, but we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. As believers in Jesus Christ, we know that our present trials and whatever darkness we're facing will not last forever, but we live in light of our salvation and the eternal hope we have in Christ because Jesus truly owned that hour. So do you question the sovereignty of God in the midst of your suffering? Then look to Jesus' suffering and see how he is Lord over even the darkest hour, even employing the sins of evil men and the supposed triumphs of Satan for the sake of saving sinners. And see how God is always at work for your good. Do you question the love of God in the midst of your suffering? Then look to Jesus' suffering and see the agony of the cup of God's wrath that he chose to drink on your behalf and see his response of love even for his beloved friend who would betray him with a kiss and see how great his love is for you. As we look to the suffering of Christ, may we always remember that he chose to submit to such suffering for our sake. And may that truth comfort us, guide us, and empower us to trust him, praise him, and imitate him for the sake of his glory. So once again, the one thing for us today is this. 
Jesus chose to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners. Jesus chose to submit to suffering for the sake of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, there is no other God or person or even idea that is greater than you. Nobody would ever leave the perfections and comforts of heaven to come into our broken, sinful world, to bear our sin, to stare sin in the faith, to take the full wrath of God that we deserve with such agony and yet choose to submit to it, to submit to such suffering for such betraying, treacherous people like us. Lord, we confess that we often assume this fact. Forgive us for ways that we have lost this awe of what you have done for us. Forgive us that we've begun to take sin lightly in our lives, that we forget the agony that you saw sin and wrath that sin deserved. Lord, we thank you that you remind us again. You convict us. You prick our consciences again with your word. And you lead us to respond as we ought with true contriteness of heart, repentance for our sin, greater faith in your love and your sovereignty, greater worship for who you are, knowing that you alone are deserving of it. Lord, we ask for your help to imitate you, to love as you have loved, to choose to suffer as your will inclines so that we might show the world not only telling them the world of the gospel, but showing them even through this supernatural kind of love and forgiveness and approach to even the the worst sufferings that that we endure to show them that that because we have a Savior that has overcome it all, that we can entrust ourselves to you. And we pray that more people would come to see the gospel in our lives, even as they hear it from our lips, and they would come to trust in you and worship you as well. Lord, we love you, we thank you. We submit our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.